0: Welcome back to the program, long before Xbox One and PlayStation were battling it out on store shelves. A small but nimble competitor, very nearly unseated Nintendo as the top game maker of the 90s. This history of the battle for video game supremacy between Sega and Nintendo is the background of a new book by my guest Blake Harris, but it's also a history of how gaming became the huge business that it is today. Blake Harris is a writer and filmmaker He's currently co-directing the documentary based on his book, which will also soon be a major motion picture produced by Scott Rudin. It is my pleasure to welcome Blake Harris here to talk about console wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the battle that defined a generation. Blake, thanks so much for joining us.
1: The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the very nice
0: introduction. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit first about what the state of the gaming industry was in the early 90s. What was it like? Very different than today.
1: Very, very different. Uh, So I'm 31 years old, and, you know, i played these games. I lived through it, but I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, and you know, watching this whole industry evolve into an industry. Um, So really the situation was in 1990, Nintendo wasn't just dominant, but they were dominant like no company I've ever seen before in any industry. They had a Nintendo Entertainment System in one out of every three homes in America. Of the top 30 toys in 1989, 25 of them were Nintendo products. So they were just massively successful and just the case of this $3 billion industry. Um... And, and it was amazing to watch Sega come in and use all sorts of tactics and, and see them competing against Nintendo and actually make a dent and, and as you mentioned, almost unseat the, the king of
0: the hill. Talk a little bit about what the secret was to Nintendo's success. Was it simply first mover advantage? Were they successful in marketing? What was at the core of their dominance in the space?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I mean, it certainly was a lot of things, but the one that really jumps out and really defines Nintendo was an internal phrase um, that was the name of the game Was the game. To them, it was all about the game. It was all about product development. The marketing even was there just to facilitate, showing viewers the game. So if you remember a lot of the commercials, they weren't super flashy and they weren't really brand-related. They were just saying, here's this great game and uh, we hope that you buy it. And they did it with great games like Zelda and Mario and uh, Contra and just, you know, hit after hit. Um, but at the core, it was always about the games of, uh, game development and uh, the two titles. And uh, at first place, Sega was much more about marketing. and That was how they competed against Nintendo. Talk a
0: little bit about Sega's philosophy before they became as successful as they were, before the change of leadership. They were certainly an also-ran, to say the least. What, what, what was driving the company at that point?
1: I mean, Sega had a lineage as an arcade company, um, so their notion was watching Nintendo make so much money and become so successful that, hey, we can bring our arcade to the home console. Um, the problem with that was that arcade games are sort of designed to keep getting you to pop it in quarters, but when you can play them with unlimited lives and unlimited time, they're maybe not so interesting and maybe not so long-lasting. Um, and Sega got their butt whooped by Nintendo with the 8-bit master system, and uh, they decided to come back for more um, and this time try to change the location of the battle to 16-bits. But even so, you know, for a long time, that wasn't very successful. They, they had some success um, you know, carving out this new 16-bit market, but Nintendo was just still this gigantic force um, and it wasn't really until late 1990 when Tom Kalinske took over, and then shortly thereafter when they unleashed, unleashed a tiny blue hedgehog that they really started to give Nintendo a run for their money.
0: Talk about Tom Kalinske. He really sits at the center of this story of, of Sega becoming successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, aside from my parents, I think Tom Kalinski is the adult who most influenced my childhood. <laughs> um, between his success with reviving Barbie... Helping to develop the Flipstone's Kids Trubal vitamins, then developing t Man Master of the Universe, working on Matchbox Cars. I mean, he just had a hand in every pop cultural phenomenon for those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, and that's before you even get to Sega. Um, it's really amazing to me <laughs> what a big role he played. Um, and, you know, he just has this magic touch for taking strange, and making them into cultural phenomena and that's what he was able to do with Sonic that's what he was able to do with the Genesis and certainly he didn't do it alone he had a team of renegades that were there fighting by his side um, but he really instilled the uh, the appreciation for imagination and the will to win um, and as the leader of the team that was exactly what they needed at exactly the right time and within three years they were able to go from 5% of the market to 55% of the market and, and you know, really see Nintendo into a corner, not just with some difficulties with the Super Nintendo, but Nintendo became sort of the uncool company, or at least in the eyes of Sega that was the case, and, and in the eyes of many Americans, too, at the time.
0: What companies did Kalinske look at as a model of the kind of creative destruction that he wanted to bring to Sega at that point?
1: Um, I mean, he, one thing that really jumped out of him was the success that Reebok had against Nike. Nike, too, in the late 70s, had a stranglehold on the athletic shoe and footwear business, and Reebok, um, you know, used really bold, aggressive advertising, some of which actually got banned from television. And to that point, he hired the ad guy at Reebok, who had designed that ad that was banned, and and brought that that rogue mentality to Sega, Um, as well as some other companies, the tech space, like, you know, he was very impressed by what Apple was doing, um, and he was impressed, too, by what Nintendo was doing. He just knew needed, whenever Nintendo zigged, he needed to zag. Otherwise, Sega just had no chance. And the other big thing that um, Tom and Sega did during this time was they sort of conceded the fact that Nintendo was just absolutely dominant amongst kids, generally 6 to 14 years old, and they thought, all right, you know, we can't really compete against them. We don't have the resources. We don't have the games. So what we're going to do is go after the teens, the college students, and the adults, and... As a result of that process, they really transformed gaming from a childish play thing into a big mainstream entertainment business and and sort of what it is today where the median age of the gamer is about 35.
0: One of the other things that Kalinsky had to deal with, which was very much a part of, as you tell the story of the industry at the time, were the retail relationships that were really very much the core of getting products off the shelf.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, as kids, and even as consumers, we just sort of think that there's this magical meritocracy where the best games are made, and then they go into the stores, and then we have a chance to buy them, and it's a pretty simple equation, but from the business perspective, it's not that way at all. You know, even getting retailers to look at you, and then getting stock in the shelves is a big deal, and not only that is that typically a big deal, but in the face of Nintendo, it was a very difficult task, and their shadow loomed very large. Um, And Nintendo, during this time, also went through some antitrust, anti-monopoly cases um, because of the way that they dealt with retailers where, allegedly, the suggested retail price was no suggestion, and Nintendo would, you know, not allocate shipments to retailers who altered that price, and they had some very heavy-handed tactics, which, from their perspective, was for the good of the industry in the sake of quality control. But it certainly made things very difficult for competitors like Sega And, you know, one of the pieces that I uh, recount in the book and that always really jumped out to me is personifying the Sega Spirit was that of Walmart, where Walmart um, sort of conceded that Sega had a good product and they would have potentially liked to stock it, but they didn't want to upset Nintendo, so they refused to do so. And so Tom and some of the other guys from Sega of America, they set up a Genesis store in Bexville, Arkansas, home of Walmart, where they invited um, people in the area to come by and play the Genesis for free um, with the hopes that people would keep coming in, playing the Genesis, and then walk into the flagship Walmart store and say, hey, where can I buy Genesis? And this sort of grassroots guerrilla marketing actually worked to the point where Tom later got a call from one of the senior people at Walmart saying, we give up, we raise the red right flag, Just stop it, uh, You know, take down the store, take down all the billboards you guys have put up in our area, and we'll carry the Genesis.
0: One of the other issues that you write about, and really it was one of the things that led to the downfall of Sega after its great success, was that they had a report to people back in Japan. Talk a little bit about those relationships.
1: Absolutely. So I guess, uh, you know, naturally when I set out to write a book about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, I assumed that that battle would be the most interesting one in the book, but what I soon found was that the um, sort of Cold War between Sega of America and Sega of Japan escalated to eventually a civil war, and uh, that ended up really, as you mentioned, sort of taking down the company. And and sort of at the heart of that friction was the fact that in the United States, we all sort of remembered as Sega versus Nintendo and this big deal, and Sega did have over 50% of the market, but in Japan, they didn't really have more than 20% of the market. It was kind of an afterthought, and they were never able to compete against Nintendo. So there was certainly a level of jealousy over there, as well as an understandable level of wanting to move on to the next system. So while things were really starting to work out here, and, say, it was hitting its stride in Japan wanted to move on to a 32-bit system and sort of abandoned everything that Bayou America was doing. So it led to this really strong cultural conflict. It ultimately ended up uh, causing Tom and the rest of the team to leave. And really, um, you know, a few years later, meeting to Sega exiting the console business completely.
0: You're right. One of the things that, that certainly drove the success of Sega was the creation of Sonic and Head the Hedgehog. Talk a little bit about that and, and the evolution of that. Where did it come from?
1: Sure. So, you know, Mario, the Super Mario Bros. game, and Mario himself became an icon for Nintendo. Um, you know, Matt got along the lines of Mickey Mouse. And, and Sega, and every other video company for that matter, knew that they needed their own Mario if they stood any chance of competing. So they actually held an internal mascot contest and asked employees from any level of the company to submit their um, drawings and descriptions of characters who could become Sega's mascot. And there were all sorts of uh, entries. You know, there was an alligator. There was a weebly-wobbly little egg. There was a, a teddy bear. Um, but the one that won the day was this Hedgehog called Mr. Beetle Mouse, and at the time, um, you know, as a kid, I remember thinking, "What's a hedgehog?" And so did the Sega executives. Nobody really knew what this was, but sort of going back to that Nintendo notion of the name of the game is the game—that's what really sells these things. Um, the, the game Sonic the Hedgehog was strong, and Sega was able to use the gameplay as a launching pad for their marketing strategy and branding of Sonic, and able to start appealing to the DNX all MTV generation. Um, and Sonic really embodied that with his sort of whatever attitude and just even the fact that he would tap his foot uh, disappointed if you were taking too much time. He was a really impatient guy. Uh, he was like sort of uh, Mario on speed and uh, that was another way that Sega zigged where Nintendo zagged and they were just a fast, edgy, in-your-face company whereas Nintendo was the slow, lumbering, exploratory company.
0: When you look at these companies and the battle between them from the perspective of gaming today, what real influence did they have?
1: I mean, the influence is tremendous. I'm uh, sure this happened two decades ago, but if it's not for the battle between, say, Nintendo, um, the industry wouldn't exist at all the way to today. From just the fact that they didn't compete with Nintendo shows that it's just more than a one-horse race here. Um, you know, spawning eventually Sony and Microsoft to enter the picture. Um, You know, we were getting to the point where Nintendo was becoming as synonymous with video games as Jacuzzi is with Hot tubs, where it was just um, the the standard name. Um, You know, and not to mention, sort of where Sega saw Nintendo as very controlling, they decided to give their developers and third parties much more leniency, which led to the promulgation of themes like uh, sex and drugs and nudity and which also then led to the Senate Subcommittee hearings on video game violence, and therefore um, causing Nintendo and Sega to put down their swords and have to work together to form what became the infrastructure of the video game industry today with the rating system, the E3 trade show, uh, and, and essentially just evolving from the wild west days depicted in the book to what we have today, which is a big business industry akin to Hollywood in a lot of respects.
0: What role did Sony and then later Microsoft play as as they saw what was going on with this battle between Sega and Nintendo? Well,
1: it's really interesting because, you know, the focal points of the story are Sega and Nintendo, but Sony and Microsoft are also taking, I consumer electronic companies during this time period, and they're sort of on the sidelines. Um, Microsoft is in Redmond, Washington, where Nintendo is, so there's always a close association up there. And then Sony um, actually in 1991 was supposed to partner with Nintendo to create a CD attachment for the Super Nintendo. And this would have been a very big deal to super Japanese um, corporations teaming up. But Nintendo um, snubbed them at the last minute and sort of publicly humiliated them, which then um, sort of almost out of revenge and Sony on a quest to uh, take down Nintendo. And at the first that this entailed teaming up with Sega to create games for the Sega CD, and then also got Netflix at the point, which I had never known before, of almost creating hardware, which would have become on a, sort of a Sega PlayStation, um, but that didn't work out either, and Sony decided to go on their own, and sort of after being snubbed by both of these big video game companies, um, ended up defeating both of them in the end.
0: Were there a lot of young game developers from that era that stayed with the business and 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 became involved in some of these other companies later on?
1: Um, definitely, you know, in terms of how what happened, in terms of the effect of this era on modern day video game industry, you just also see um, quite frankly, prior to this point, all video games were developed in Japan, um, and certainly there's a lot of games still developed in Japan and a lot of great games, but um, just the success of Sega and really the way that the Nintendo and Sega followed each other opened up um, a lot more options for third-party developers and created the success on consoles of companies like Electronic Arts and Acclaim and others that would uh, you know go on to offer startup gaps to these developers that, that are around today.
0: Blake Harris, the book is Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. Blake, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Oh, no, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.